The Tree of Appomattox, A Story of the Civil War's Close by Joseph A. Altscheller The eighth and final volume of the Civil War series Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com Read by John Bruzes You can find us on Facebook at Civil War Audio Podcast Chapter 13, Dick's Great Exploit It was a singular and weird sound, the blowing of the great cow's horn on the mountain, and then the distant reply from another horn is great. It was both significant and sinister, such an extraordinary note that, despite Dick's experience and courage, his hair lifted a little. He was compelled to look back at the camp and the coals of the fire yet glowing, to reassure himself that everything was normal and real. "'I wish there wasn't so much snow,' said Shepard. "'Then the sergeant, Mr. Reed, and myself "'could scout all over the country around here, "'mountains or no mountains.' "'They were joined at that moment by Reed, the long mountaineer, "'who had also been listening to the bighorns. "'That means them gorillas, sure,' he said. "'We got some poison people of our own,' And when the gorillas come in here, they joined them, and knowing every inch of the country, they can guide the gorillas wherever they please. You agree, then, with Mr. Shepard, that these signals are made by Slade and Skelly's men? asked Dick. Surely, replied the mountaineer, and I think they're up to some sort of trick. It pesters me, too, because I can't guess it nohow. I done told the colonel we'd better look out. Colonel Winchester joined them as he was speaking and listened to the double signal, which was repeated later. But it did not come again, although they waited some time. Instead, they heard, as they had heard all through the night, the occasional swish of the soft snow sliding down the slopes. But Dick saw that the colonel was uneasy, and that his apprehensions were shared both by Shepard and the mountaineer. "'Do you know how many men these brigands have?' Colonel Winchester asked of Reed. I reckon there are five hundred of them gorillas, replied the mountaineer. Some of our people spied on them in Burton's Cove and counted about that number. Colonel Winchester glanced at his sleeping camp. I have three hundred, he said, but they're the very flower of our youth. In the open they could take care of a thousand gorillas and have something to spare. Still, in here? He stopped short, but the shrewd mountaineer read his meaning. In the mountains it ain't such plain sailing, he said, and you've got to watch for tricks. I reckon that when it comes to fighting here, it's something like the old engine days. I can't see how they can get at us here, said Colonel Winchester, more to himself than the others. A dozen men could hold the exit by the creek, and fifty could hold the entrance. Despite his words, his uneasiness continued, and he sent for the sergeant, upon whose knowledge and instincts he relied greatly in such a situation. The sergeant, who had been watching at the other end of the valley, came quickly, and, when the colonel looked at him with eyes of inquiry, he said promptly, "'Yes, sir, I think there's mischief afoot. I can't rightly make out where it's going to be started, but I can hear it, smell it, and feel it. It's like waiting in a dip on the prairies for a rush by the wild Sioux or Cheyenne horseman.' The signs seemed to come through the air. Dick's oppression increased. 
A mysterious danger was the worst of all, and his nerves were on edge. Think as he might, he could not conceive how or where the attack would be made. The only sound in the valley was the occasional stamp of the horses in the woods and behind the windrows. The soldiers themselves made no noise. The steps of the sentinels were softened in the snow, and the fires, having sunk to beds of coals, gave forth no crackling sounds. He stared down the gap, and then up at the white world of walls circling them about. The sky seemed to have become a more dazzling blue than ever, and the great stars with the hosts of their smaller brethren around them gleamed and quivered. The stamp of a horse came again, and then a loud shrill neigh, a piercing sound, full of menace in the night. "'What was that?' exclaimed the sergeant in alarm. "'A horse does not neigh at such a time without good reason.' And then the storm broke loose in the valley. There was a series of short, fierce shouts. Torches were suddenly waved in the air. Many horses neighed in the wildest terror, and, all of them breaking through the forest and windrows, poured in a confused and frightened stream toward the entrance of the valley. Then the experience of the sergeant in wild Indian warfare was worth more than gold and diamonds. He knew at once what was occurring, and he shouted, "'It's a stampede! There have been traitors here, and they've driven the horses with fire!' "'And maybe some of them managed to slip down the mountainside,' said Shepard. "'It was well for them all that they were men of decision and supreme courage. "'The terrible tumult in the valley was increasing. "'The horses, a stampeded mass, were driving directly for the entrance. "'Only one thing could stop them, and that the guards then did.' They snatched many burning brands from the nearest fire and waved them furiously in the face of the frightened herd, which turned and ran back the other way, only to be confronted by other waving brands that filled them with terror. Then the horses, instinctively following some leader, turned again and ran back to their old places among the trees and behind the windrows, where they stood, quivering with terror." A crackling of rifles had begun before the horses were driven back, and bullets pattered in the valley. Dark figures appeared crouched against the slopes, and jets of fire ran like a red ribbon upon the white of the snow. Guerrillas! cried Reed. They've crept over the ridges, spite of all our watching. Colonel Winchester did not lose his head for an instant, nor did any of his young soldiers, who had been trained to think as well as obey. Without waiting for orders, they had already won an important victory by turning the horses back with fire, and the colonel, with the help of his officers, formed them rapidly to meet the attack. The house, the stable, and the corn crib were filled with sharpshooters, and others lay down among the trees or behind any shelter they could find. A number were detailed rapidly to tether the horses and make them secure against a second fright. Warner was sent to the men guarding the entrance, Pennington to those at the exit, while Dick was kept with the colonel, who crouched, after his arrangements were made, in a little clump of trees near the center of the valley. Colonel Winchester was willing enough to risk his life, but knowing that it was of the highest importance now to preserve it, he did not take any risks through false pride. Besides Dick, he kept Reed, Shepard, and the sergeant with him. The ring of fire on the slopes had been increasing fast, 
and the assailants found much shelter there among the dwarf pines and cedars. Bullets were pattering all over the valley. Several of the Winchesters had been slain in the early firing, and they lay where they had fallen. Others were wounded, but they bound up their own hurts and used their rifles whenever they could pick out a figure on the slopes. "'You spoke of traitors, Mr. Reed,' said the Colonel. "'Did you know well all the men who came to help in the preparations for us?' "'All but two, replied the mountaineer. "'One was named Leonard, and the other Bosley. "'They came from the other side of the mountain with some of the boys, "'and we thought they was all right. "'But I reckon they must be the traitors. "'And I reckon, too, they must have helped some of the guerrillas into the camp. "'I ain't seen a sign of either since them horses was headed back.' I guess we was took in, and I'm powerful sorry, Colonel. You're not to blame, Mr. Reed. It's not always possible to guard against treachery, but since we've defeated their attempt to stampede our horses, we'll defeat all other efforts of theirs. Colonel, would you mind lending me them glasses of urine for a look? The night's so bright, I guess I can use them nigh as well as in the day. Certainly, you can have them, Mr. Reed. Here they are. The mountaineer took a long look through them, and when he handed them back, he uttered a clucking sound, significant of satisfaction. I loud it was him. When I saw him crawling behind that bush, he said, and now I know. Who is who? asked Dick. It's that feller Bosley who came with the rest of the boys. I know that gray comfort what's he's tied around his neck, and the coonskin cap what's on his head. He just crawled behind that little twisted pine up there, and took a pot shot at some of us down here. I wish I could reach him, said Shepard. If you could, I wouldn't let you, said the mountaineer grimly. Why? Because he's my meat. He come here with my people and played a trick on us, a trick that might have wiped out all of Colonel Winchester's men. No man can do that with me and get away. He's piled up a powerful big score, and I'm going to settle it myself. How? See this rifle of mine? I reckon it ain't got all the fancy tricks that some of the new repeating breech-loading rifles have. It's just a cap-and-ball rifle, but it's got a long, straight barrel and a delicate trigger, and it sends a bullet wherever you point it. It's killed squirrels and rabbits and wild turkeys and catamounts and bears, and now I reckon it's going to hunt higher game. The man was talking very quietly, but when Dick saw the light in his eye, he knew that he meant every word. It was a cold, implacable look, and the face of the mountaineer was like that of an avenging fate. I loaded it with uncommon care, he continued, looking affectionately at his rifle, and then looking up again, and now that the colonel's glasses have showed me the way, I can see that feller peeping from round his bush, trying to get another shot, maybe at me and maybe at you. It's a long carry, but I'm sure to hit. I had a chance at him then, but I allow to wait a little. Why do you wait? asked Dick curiously. I'm giving him time to say his prayers. Why, he doesn't know that you're going to shoot at him, and he wouldn't pray even if he did. Maybe not, but I was raised right, and I know my duty. I ain't going to send no man to kingdom without giving him time to pray. If he won't use it, the blame is hisn. But that ain't no reason why I oughtn't give him the time. How long? Well, I reckon about three minutes is enough for a right good prayer. There, he shot again, but I don't know where his bullet went. 
He's using up his praying time fast. Reed never altered his quiet, assured tone. He reminded Dick of Warner, talking about his algebra, and the lad was impressed so much by his manner that he believed he was going to do as he said. He began unconsciously to count the seconds. Time's up, said Reed at length, and that traitor is poking his head round for another shot. He raised suddenly his long-barreled rifle, took a quick aim, and pulled the trigger. A stream of fire poured from the muzzle. The figure of a man leaped from the bush and then rolled down the snowy slope. I give him plenty of time, said Reed as he reloaded. Now I reckon I'll look for that other feller, Leonard. I'll know him when I see him, and this old cap and ball rifle of mine knows too how to talk to traitors. Dick left presently with a message to a captain who was in command of the force detached to hold the entrance to the valley. He ran part of the way in the shelter of the trees and crept the rest, reaching the captain in safety. Warner was there also, and the fire upon them from the slopes was hot. "'There's been no attempt to force the gateway here,' said Warner. "'Since they failed with the horses, they wouldn't dare try it. "'Besides, our sharpshooters are doing execution. "'Those in the upper story of the house have an especially good chance. "'Look at the black dots in the snow high up on the slopes. "'Those are dead gorillas. "'There, two men fell. "'Perhaps if they had known the kind of regiment it was that they were coming after, "'they wouldn't have been in such a hurry to attack us.' He spoke with pride, but Dick felt some chagrin. "'That's true,' he said, "'though I don't like our regiment to be besieged here by a lot of guerrillas. "'It's an ignominy. "'It's not enough for us to hold our own against them, "'because they're the people we came to get, and we ought to get them. "'I dare say the colonel thinks as you do, "'and he's already planning how to do it. "'This is a smart little battle, as it is. "'Those sharpshooters of ours in the houses,' are certainly making it warm for the enemy. The firing was now very fast, and as long as the brilliancy of the night remained unobscured, much of it was deadly, but a great amount of smoke gathered, and, as it rose, it formed a cloud. The showers of bullets then decreased in volume, and a comparative lull came. But the men of Slade and Skelly could yet be seen on the crests and slopes, and there was no indication that they would draw off. Dick made his way to Colonel Winchester, who was still in the clump of trees, a central point from which he could direct the defense. The colonel, as Dick clearly saw, felt chagrin. While they had prevented the stampede of the horses and were holding off Slade and Skelly, the roles which he had intended for the forces to play were reversed. They had come forth to destroy the guerrillas, and now they had to fight hard to keep the guerrillas from destroying them. Despite their shelter, about fifteen of the Winchester men had been slain, and perhaps twenty-five wounded, a loss over which the colonel grieved. Doubtless as many of the guerrillas had fallen or had been hurt, but that was a poor consolation. It was obvious, too, that Slade and Skelly were handling their forces with much skill, utilizing for shelter every bush and dwarf tree on the slopes, and never exposing themselves, except for a moment or two. Had there not been so many sharpshooters among the Winchester men, they might have escaped almost without any damage. But for some of the deadly riflemen in the valley, a single glimpse was enough. Nevertheless, 
Colonel Winchester's dissatisfaction remained. He felt that a force such as his, which had come forth to do so much, should do it, and he ransacked his brain for a plan. Mr. Reed, he said to the mountaineer who had remained with him, do you think we could send a detachment through the pass, down the stream, and take them in the rear? That is, this force might climb the slopes behind them and attack from above? The mountaineer chewed his tobacco thoughtfully, looked up at the ridges, and then at the gorge down which they could hear the waters of the little creek rushing. It's a big risk, he replied, but I allow it can be done, though you'll have to pick your men, Colonel. You let me be guide, and be sure to send the sergeant, because he's a full team all by himself. And Mr. Shepard ought to go along, too. All the others ought to be youngsters, and suppose you let Mr. Mason here lead them. Colonel Winchester did not resent at all these suggestions, which he knew to be excellent, and while at first, for personal reasons of his own, he hesitated about sending Dick on so perilous an errand, he knew that he was better fitted for it than any other young officer in his command, and so he chose him. The plan, too, appealed to him strongly. He had taken lessons from the grand tactics of Lee and Jackson. Lee would keep up a great demonstration in front, while Jackson, circling in silence, would strike a tremendous and deadly blow on the flank. The longer he thought about it, the more he was pleased with it. If the flanking force could cut through the gorge, the prospect of success was good, and fortunately the night had turned darker, the snow clouds reappearing. The colonel picked 150 of his best men, with Shepard, Reed, and Whitley to guide, and Dick to lead them. Warner and Pennington protested when they were not allowed to go, but the colonel quieted them with the assurance that they would soon have plenty of dangerous work to do in the valley. To Dick, he said gravely, Before now, you've nearly always been a staff officer and messenger, and this is the most important command you've ever held. I know you'll acquit yourself well, but trust a lot to your guides. I will, sir, said Dick earnestly. He felt the full weight of his responsibility, but his courage rose to meet it. It was the largest task yet confided to him, and he was resolved to make it a success. He noticed also that fortune, as if determined to help the brave, was already giving him aid. More stars were withdrawing into the void, and the clouds were increasing. The night had grown much darker, and a few flakes of snow wandered lazily down, messengers of the multitude that might follow. The increasing dusk did not diminish the activity of the brigands on the slopes. It was obvious that they had an unlimited supply of ammunition as they sent an unbroken stream of bullets into the valley, and pink dots ran like ribbons around its entire snowy rim. But in the valley itself, all the fires had been put out, and it was fairly dark there, enabling Dick's command to gather, unseen by the enemy. Now, Dick, said Colonel Winchester, I trust you. Go, and may luck go with you. He led his men away, the three guides by his side, and they used every particle of cover they could find in order that the movement might remain invisible until the last possible moment. They hugged the fringe of the forest, and when they reached the gorge, he felt sure they were still unseen, although it was only the easy part of their task that had yet been done. 
but the lazy flakes had increased in number, and the canopy of cloud was still being drawn across the heavens. He gave the word to his men to be as silent as possible, not to let any weapon rattle or fall, and then they entered the gorge in two files, separated by the creek, the narrow ledges affording room for only one man on either side. Dick kept his outward calm, but the great pulses in his throat and temples were beating hard. Reed was just ahead of him, and on the other side of the creek the sergeant led, with Shepard following. Large flakes of snow fell on his face and melted there, but they were welcome messengers, telling him that the cloak for the movement would not only remain, but would increase in extent. After the first curve, the stream took a sharp descent, but the land on either side widened a little, permitting two to walk abreast. The valley and the slopes encircling it were now entirely shut out from their view, but they heard the crackling of the rifles in greater volume than ever. Colonel Winchester, true to Lee and Jackson's plan of grand tactics, had opened an extremely heavy fire on the enemy as soon as his flanking column had disappeared in the gorge. "'I allow the signs are good,' whispered Reed. "'Them that lay in ambush sometimes get laid in an ambush themselves. "'I felt powerful bad at being held in a trap here in my own mountains by them gorillas, "'but maybe we'll do some trap-laying of our own.' "'I feel sure of it,' said Dick. "'Look, the stream ahead of us is lined with bushes, "'which will afford concealment for our march, "'and the slopes beyond are covered with scrub forest.' Like as not, them gorillas came that way, and when we circle about, we can follow in their tracks. Dick felt that fortune was showering her favors upon him. The last star was now gone, and the entire sky was veiled. The big flakes of snow were falling fast enough to help their concealment, but not fast enough to impede their movements. A mile down the gorge and they halted, still unseen by the enemy, due doubtless to the heavy firing in the valley, which was engrossing all the attention of the guerrillas. They could hear it very distinctly where they were, and they were quite sure that it would not permit Slade and Skelly to detach any part of their force for purposes of observation. So Dick gave orders for his men to turn and begin the ascent of the slope under the shelter of the scrub forest of cedars. They were to go in a column four abreast, carefully treading in the tracks of one another, in order that they might not start a slide of snow. Dick's pulses beat hard until they reached the shelter of the cedars, but no lurking gorilla or posted sentinel saw them, and they drew into the forest in silence and unobserved. Here they paused a few minutes and listened to the heavy rifle fire in the valley. "'It looks like a success, sir,' said Shepard, if we catch them between two fires, victory is surely ours. Besides beating them, there's one thing I hope for, said Reed. If that traitor Leonard hasn't fell already, I'm praying that I get a look at him. My old cap and ball rifle here is just as true as ever. The mountaineer's eyes glittered again, and Dick did not feel that Leonard's fate was in any doubt. But there was little time to talk as the column began the march again and pressed on under the cover of the cedars, until they came without interruption and triumphantly to the very crest of the slope. 
The firing was still distinctly audible here, and the other half of the army was undoubtedly keeping the guerrillas busy. On the summit, Dick gave his men another brief breathing spell, and then they began their advance toward the battle. He threw in advance the best of the sharpshooters and scouts, including Whitley, Shepard, and Reed, and then followed swiftly with the others. Half the distance, and a man behind a tree saw them, shouted, fired, and ran toward the guerrillas. Dick, knowing that concealment was no longer possible, cried to his men to rush forward at full speed. A light scattering fire met them. Two or three were wounded, but none fell, and the entire column swept on as as much speed as the deep snow would allow, sending in shot after shot from their own rifles at the guerrillas clustered along the crests and slopes. The light was sufficient for them to take aim, and as they were sharpshooters, the fire was accurate and deadly. Their shout of victory rose and swelled, and the mountain gave it back in many echoes. Dick, feeling his responsibility, managed to keep cool, but he continually shouted to his men to press on, knowing how full advantage should be taken of a surprise. But they needed no urging. Aflame with fire and zeal, they charged upon the guerrillas, pulling the trigger as fast as they could slip in the cartridges, and Slade and Skelly, despite all their cunning and quickness, were unable to make a stand against them. A great shout came up from the valley. The moment Colonel Winchester heard the fire on the flank, he knew that his plan, executed with skill by one of his lieutenants, was a success, and gathering up his own force, he crept up the slopes, his men sending their fire into the guerrillas, who were already breaking. Dick's troop was doing great damage. The guerrillas in their rovings and robberies had never before faced such a fire, and they fell fast, the deep snow making flight difficult. Reed, who was at Dick's side, suddenly uttered a cry. I see him! I see him! he shouted. The long-barreled cap-and-ball rifle leaped to his shoulder, and when the stream of fire gushed from the muzzle, Leonard, the mountaineer, fell in the snow and would never betray anybody else. Most of the guerrillas were now fleeing in panic, and Dick heard the shrill, piercing notes of Slade's whistle as he tried to draw his men off in order. For a moment or two, he forgot his duties as a leader, and, pistol in hand, he looked for the little man under the enormous slouch hat. Once more, the feeling seized him that it was a long duel between Slade and himself that must end in the death of one or the other, and he meant to end it now. Despite the fierce notes of the whistle, coming from one point and then another, he did not see him. He caught a glimpse of the gigantic form of Skelly, but he too was soon gone, and then, when he felt the restraining hand of Shepard upon his arm, he came out of his rage. "'Look there!' cried Shepard. About a score of the guerrillas had been cut off from their comrades and were driven toward the valley, where they remained on its edge, crouched down and firing." The deep snow in which they knelt was quivering. Dick shouted to his men to draw back. Then the huge bank of snow gave way and slid down the slope, carrying the guerrillas and gathering volume and force as it went. A terrified shouting came from the thick of it as the avalanche hurled itself into the valley where the bruised and broken guerrillas were taken prisoners without resistance. Dick, after one glance at their fate, 
continued the pursuit of the main band down the other slope. He knew that they were robbers and murderers, and he felt little scruple. His sharpshooters fairly mowed them down as they fled in terror, but all who threw up their hands or signified otherwise that they wished to surrender were spared. Still bearing in mind that it was their duty not merely to scatter but to destroy, he urged on the pursuit continually, and Shepard and the sergeant aided him. They gave Slade and Skelly no time to reform their men, driving them from every clump of trees when they attempted it, and continually reducing their numbers. The rout was complete, and Dick's heart beat high with triumph, because he knew that his force had been the striking arm. They were nearly at the foot of the far side of the mountain when he saw Slade among the bushes. He shouted to him to surrender, but the outlaw, suddenly aiming a pistol, fired point-blank at the young lieutenant's face. Dick felt the bullet grazing his head, and he raised his own pistol to fire, but Slade was gone, and although they trailed him a long distance in the snow, they did not find him. <laughs>